just a couple announcements before we jump into our message today. Some of this is uh, old news if you've been here. Um, on Sunday, August 27th, our Sunday service times are shifting from two services to three services. Our 1030 service has been filling up in the seats in the kids' ministry and our parking lot. So uh, we need to kind of divide those people into two services. So starting August 27th, we'll have Sunday morning services at 8, 9, 30, and 11. So pick which new service you will come to and plan on the 27th to lock in. That exact same week, we are starting our fall week of prayer. Uh, and for those of you who are new to our church, we will meet hundreds and hundreds of us. We'll meet every morning in person or online from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m., Monday through Friday, from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. on Saturday, and we will just pray for an hour. We'll be praying through the six verses of the 23rd Psalm, one verse per day. We'll be, say, we'll be seeing what Jesus says, or the scripture says about Jesus being our shepherd. We'll be seeing what the reality of our life is, and we'll be putting those together and figuring out how to pray through hard things in life. So put both of those on your calendar. Most people do not have anything on their calendar between 6 and 7 a.m. If you're one of those, be here to pray with us the week of August 27th. It's going to be um, a really great week to kind of kick off the fall season of our church. We're in Matthew 26 today, if you have your Bibles. If you don't, all of the scripture that I read from, scripture, uh, from the Bible will be on the screen. Uh, we're in the fourth week of a series called It Is Finished. You say, what is finished? Well, for one, the book of Matthew. We've been studying it for three years. We're finally coming to the end of it. But more than that, the life and the ministry and the mission of Jesus in his first coming is going to be finished. We're studying the final five days of his life. The first message was on Wednesday. This will now be the third message on Thursday of the week that Jesus was crucified, buried, and risen. Um, we've had a long day with Jesus on Thursday. We spent the first part of Thursday talking about Judas Iscariot. And we learned the parts of Judas's spiritual DNA that were in each of us that are revealed sometimes throughout our walk. And we learned how to lean into Jesus a little bit. Last week, we saw Jesus Thursday between probably 9 p.m. and midnight take a walk with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane from the upper room. And he gave them this message. He basically said at some point in time, most followers of Jesus are going to fail, bail, and struggle. And when you do, here's the invitation for you to me. And we saw at every time Jesus said, this can cause you to struggle. Jesus said, when you get done, come back. There are going to be times in your faith walk when you fail, when you bail, when you struggle. When you're done, Jesus says, meet me in Galilee, come back. Tonight we're going to be on Thursday and we're going to end on Friday morning. We're going to walk from Thursday about midnight at the Garden of Gethsemane. To, to basically dawn um, or sun up on Friday morning in the garden or the courtyard of the high priest. And as we walk through today's text, we're going to see two things that I think are enlightening. We're going to see why people reject Jesus, but two specific groups of people. We're going to see why non-Christians, and there are some of you in the room who are not yet Christians. Thanks for being with us today. You're always welcome here to learn and ask questions. But we're going to see why a large majority of people who are not yet Christians yet who have heard the gospel reject Jesus. We're going to see the big reason why most people say, no, I don't want that. But then we're also going to see, as we get into the second part of the message, the reason why so many Christians who are followers of Jesus get to a point in their faith walk where Jesus says, here's your next step. And they say, no, I, I, I don't want to do that. I can't do that. So we're going to see today why non-Christians reject Jesus. We're going to see as we walk through Matthew 26 today why some Christians reject the call of Jesus to go to the next step that he's calling them to. We're going to start, number one, with why non-Christians reject Jesus, and we're going to see it's because there's a refusal to submit to Jesus. There's just people who simply 
are not going to let somebody else be in charge of any area of their life, much less the spiritual area of their life. We're going to see in today's text people who refuse Jesus because they refuse to submit to Jesus. We'll start in verse 57, work our way through verse 75, but kind of read a little, teach a little, read a little, teach a little. It says this, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So we ended last week around midnight in the Garden of Gethsemane. We pick up now about two and a half miles, just a little bit to the northeast. We've walked kind of through the old city of Jerusalem. About a one-hour walk, Jesus probably in ropes or in handcuffs or in chains, has gone from the Garden of Gethsemane. He's now in the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Um, and I want you to see the crowd. Like as we enter the text, we read who's there. We read that the Sanhedrin was there. The Sanhedrin consisted of 70 people. We read they were all there. We read that the chief priests were there, probably dozens of them. We read that the temple guard was there, probably a crowd of no less than 50. So I want you to see this scene because Jesus is brought into this arena, not a room, but an arena that probably has between 150 and 250 people there ready to interview him, ready to try him. And it says they are looking for false evidence. Here's what I want you to see as we jump into this point of the text when we deal with people who have rejected Jesus. We should always be aware of people who reject God first and then look for evidence that justifies their decision as they go. Here's what you need to know about this crowd. They had already determined they were not going to follow Jesus. They had already determined they were going to kill him. They were just looking for the official reason why. You have some people in your life who have already determined they are never going to follow Jesus. Now they are looking for reasons why. A few years ago at our student camp, we had a, uh, an evangelist in by the name of Adrian Dupree. He came and spoke at our church last year, did a sermon called Four Chairs. It was one of the craziest, most memorable sermon that like, you maybe have ever been a part of. And one of the last nights of camp, he did a Q&A with our kids. And he said, you guys can ask me any question about anything, and I'll try to give you the best spiritual answer that I can. But he said this. I'd never heard anyone say this before. But he said, I don't want to have discussions with dishonest skeptics. He said, here's what I mean by that. He said, there are honest skeptics in the room who have questions, and if you can get your questions answered, you'll consider following Jesus. But he said, there's also a lot of dishonest skeptics in the room that if I answer your question, you'll find a new question because you've already decided you don't care about the answers. You've already decided to reject Jesus, and no matter what answers I give to you, your questions, you'll find new questions because you're not interested in answers. You've already decided you're going to reject Jesus. All of us will have people in our lives, in our families, in our friend groups, some in our church circles who have already decided to reject Jesus, and every time we answer their faith questions, they'll go find another one because they're not interested in the answer. They're only interested in arguing. You've met people like that, right? This was that group in Matthew 26. They're looking for false evidence, clearly, because Matthew says it, but then passively we're told that their hearts had already rejected Jesus. You say, where do you see that? Here's where I see that. What appears to be a strange question, a question out of order, a question out of context by the high priest, actually clearly reveals both the biblical knowledge and the spiritual rejection of the high priest. So in this conversation, the high priest is going to ask a question, but it, is, it appears to be the wrong question at the wrong time. But what is revealed through this question is that this guy knows the Bible and knows what the Bible says about the Jewish Messiah, 
And he's already decided he's not going to follow the Jewish Messiah. Look at verses 60, the last part of verse 60 through verse 63. People are trying to find false evidence against Jesus. Finally, two came forward. And they declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you said you were going to tear down the temple. Is that what he says? It's not the question he asked. It's like, did we miss part of the conversation? Did he miss part of the conversation? Like, he's angry because Jesus didn't answer the question, are you going to tear, that you said you're going to tear down the temple. It's not the question he asked. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. This is not the question that appears to attach itself to the statement, he said he's going to tear the temple down. But it is the question that was asked, and unless you know the scripture really, really well, it appears to be a strange question, but if you know the Old Testament scripture, the Hebrew scripture, the Hebrew Bible, what our Jewish friends in Israel call the Tanakh, the first 39 books of our Bible, if you know those really, really well, like maybe a chief priest or a high priest would, you know exactly the question that this man is asking. Because in those 39 Old Testament books, the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, there was a prophet named Jeremiah that was called the New Covenant Prophet. Jeremiah was the prophet that said God's going to do something new because the old way hasn't been working. God's going to do something new through the Messiah. And listen to what the New Covenant Prophet said about the Messiah. Jeremiah 3, 15 through 16, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will lead you with knowledge and understanding. In those days... When your numbers have increased greatly in the land, declares the Lord, people will no longer say, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It will never even enter their minds or be remembered. It won't be missed, nor will another one be made. Jeremiah says when the Messiah comes, people won't even talk about the Ark of the Covenant anymore. One of the reasons those of us who have been to Israel know very, very clearly that the Jewish people in Israel don't believe Messiah has come because they're still trying to worship where the ark last was, and they're trying to find the ark of the covenant, the ark of the covenant, the ark of the covenant. Where is it? Jeremiah says when the Messiah comes, you, won't, you not only won't worry about the ark, you won't even miss it because the one the ark represents will really be here. More than that, Jeremiah 7, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions. And I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The Jews who knew the scriptures well were waiting for a Messiah who would mean more than the temple and the ark. They were waiting for the Messiah who would not need the temple and the ark to connect people to God. And when Caiaphas asked Jesus, tell us, not are you going to tear down the temple, tell us if you're the Messiah... He was basically saying, tell us if you're the guy Jeremiah 7 is talking about. Are you saying we don't need the temple to connect to God anymore because you're here? Tell us plainly if that's you. The things that were placeholders in Israel for the Messiah, the temple and the ark, were going to go away. And these people knew what Jesus' statement meant. They knew it meant that he was the Messiah. They knew that it had been prophesied. Yet, they were ready to kill him anyway if he wouldn't submit to their leadership and their way of life. Some of you started reading the Bible with us uh, this year. We had a, almost 1,000 people who started reading the Bible through in 2023 together as a church. My guess is we probably still got about 100 of those that are going strong and 900 that are kind of maybe limping along. 
Uh, we've got a chance for you to restart, by the way. October 1st, which is a little ways away, is the first day of reading the New Testament. You can read the New Testament the last 90 days of the year. You'll kind of re-engage. But for those of us who have been reading together, last few weeks have been a little bit frustrating. Especially a guy by the name of Hezekiah, who seemed to get it so right until he got it so wrong. This guy that God bailed out, this guy that God saved, this guy that God did the miraculous for, but then he got prideful. And he didn't care about anyone but himself spiritually. And God sent a prophet to say, because of your pride, because of your arrogance, because of your ignorance, like, the country you now lead is going to go down. It's gone. Your sons are going to be killed. They're going to be taken to a foreign land. Like, nothing you have is going to be left. And Hezekiah said, um, just one follow-up question. When's that going to happen? And the prophet's like, after you're dead. And Hezekiah's like, okay. As long as it doesn't happen to me, I'm good. The part about Hezekiah's story that I cringe at the most is that in 2 Kings 20, the prophet told him, the people who take your sons away will make eunuchs out of them, which means they'll be unable to bear children. The only thing that made Hezekiah special in the eyes of the Lord is that he came from the line of David and that the line of David would pass through him until Messiah was born into the line of David. And Hezekiah not only knew this, he was saying this, I know that my life is supposed to impact the rest of the world for eternity, but I really don't care about anyone else but myself and my generation. So if my sons can't have kids, if my grandsons can't have kids, if the whole Messiah thing doesn't work out later, long as it's not during my lifetime, I'm good. I just think, man, how selfish, how arrogant, how short-sighted. This is the spiritual posture of these men talking to Jesus. They know what Jesus is offering, but it will change how they live their life, and they don't really want to change how they live there. They like their life in the moment. And it's interesting because Jesus says, the way you're approaching this is going to tell me, you are going to reject me and I am going to reject you. Because his answer to the high priest's question, are you the Messiah, clearly revealed his standards for our salvation. We do not have to do anything to earn our salvation, but there are clear standards for salvation. Look at verses 63 and 64. The high priest asked, what's the testimony? Jesus remained silent. So the high priest said, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is Jesus saying? Please understand the biblical language that Jesus is using. Jesus is saying, yes, I am Messiah. Messiah means that he is our spiritual king. It was a term used in the Old Testament to describe not just the king of Israel, but the spiritual king of the world. When Jesus said, yes, are you the Messiah? He's like, yes, you've said so. I am the spiritual king. And I'm going to be at the right hand of the mighty one, which means I am God's official representative. I am the one God has sent to connect humanity to him, not the ark, not the temple. That's why Jeremiah said they wouldn't be needed anymore. And I am coming on the clouds of heaven. Every time this word picture is pictured in the Old Testament, it symbolizes judgment. Jesus says, I am the spiritual king. I am God's representative to connect you to him. I am the one who judges the world and determines who connects to God and who is rejected by God. It is Jesus or nothing is his answer. Yes, it's me. And if it's not me, there's no other way. Isaiah 33, 22 says it this way. The Lord our God is judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And it is he who will save us. What Jesus was saying to these men who knew Old Testament scripture very well was this. 
if you reject me as king, if you reject me as lawgiver, if you reject me as judge, you, am, you are rejecting me as savior. If you are rejecting me of being the spiritual king of your life, if you are rejecting me being the one that tells you how God desires to live your life, if you are rejecting me as the one who judges what is sin and what is righteousness, if you are unwilling to live under my spiritual authority, then I am unable to be your savior. The Lord is lawgiver, the Lord is judge, the Lord is king. And when he is those things, it is he who will save us. But when you reject Jesus as the first three, he rejects you from the last one. And Caiaphas knew this in verses 65 through 68. When he heard Jesus say this, the high priest tore his clothes and he said, he spoke in blasphemy. What was the blasphemy? That I am the Messiah, that I am the judge, that I am the lawgiver. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face. They struck him with their fist. Others slapped him, and they said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who is the one who hit you? You need to understand as you look at this trial of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus had nothing to do with his spiritual actions. Nothing he did, nothing he said required death. It had everything to do with the religious leader's spiritual attitudes. We will not serve you. We will not change for you. We are not going to submit our lives to you. And you need to understand there are going to be people in your life who forever say no to Jesus and his offer of salvation because they want what I would call 25% Jesus. They want a Jesus who will save them, but who will not have to be their king, judge, and lawgiver. And sadly, there are some churches that offer that Jesus to people. Come to Jesus. He loves you. You don't have to let him be your king. Come to Jesus. He loves you. Live how you want. Establish your own righteousness. Come to Jesus. He doesn't judge anyone. That is not what this Bible says. 25% Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. And people will reject Jesus because they are unable to take all of Jesus as king, lawgiver, and judge. Let me give you another example of it. Um, in the 1970s, there was a Canadian fast food restaurant who was trying to break into the American market. And their product um, that made them the most money was a hamburger. And they were struggling to sell it because McDonald's had kind of overtaken the fast food market with their Big Mac. Um, but they found a niche because the Big Mac could not be changed. You could not go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac without lettuce. You could not go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac without special sauce. You could not go to McDonald's and get a Big Mac without sesame seeds. Like you either got the Big Mac the way McDonald's wanted you to have it or you had to get something else. So this Canadian restaurant said, we will offer a burger, but we'll let people have it their own way. And in 1974, they coined the phrase, BK, have it your way. Some of you are Burger King Christians. <laughs> You're like, I don't want the Jesus thing. Two patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese on a sesame seed bun. I want the Jesus thing my way. That's not on this menu. Jesus, have him your way. Nope, don't have it. Like, nope, there's no such thing as, are you saying that, like, for me, are you comparing Jesus to a Big Mac? Kind of, not really. It's a, I mean, it's a bad comparison. But you get the thought. Like, Jesus comes the Jesus way, or he doesn't come at all. And there's too many people who want Jesus your way. You don't get Jesus your way. You get Jesus his way. 
And this is why so many non-Christians have decided to reject Jesus. They don't want Jesus his way. They want Jesus their way. That's not an option. But why do so many Christians reject Jesus' next step for them? If non-Christians, so many reject Jesus because they refuse to submit to his way of life, a lot of Christians reject Jesus because of their refusal to suffer. What Jesus is asking them to do is a step too far out of their comfort for them to keep walking with him. Look at Peter's story in verse 69 through 75. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I promise, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses. God, curse me if I'm lying. I swear I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken before the rooster crows. You'll disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. A couple random things that I think add some layers in spiritual insight to this story that we're reading. First, I think it's important to understand that Peter denied that he knew Jesus twice to servant girls. When you read like the original Greek language written here and you compare that to other Greek literature, probably these were girls that were 13 or 14 or 15 years old. And they were like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? And he was like, absolutely not. What you need to understand is while the physical threat wasn't imposing to Peter, the spiritual threat was. This is what we call spiritual warfare. When Satan takes things that are not as big a deal as they should be and he blows them up into like the biggest deal. Here's what you need to understand about Satan. He did it in the Garden of Eden. He did it here in the courtyard, the Garden of the High Priest. Satan is always going to minimize to you the promises of God and the punishment of sin. Satan is going to say, God's not going to give you that. He's not going to be that great. And then he's going to say of sin, it's not going to be that bad. Everyone's doing it. You're just going to be normal. Like the promises of God, not really worth it. Sin, it's okay. He's going to minimize the promises of God, and he's going to minimize the punishment of God until you sin. And then he's going to maximize them. And he's going to come after you and say, look what you missed, you fool. God offered you everything. You get nothing. And all of a sudden, this is going to grow in your head. And he's going to minimize or maximize your sin. Before he told you, it's no big deal. Everyone does it. Now he's going to tell you, if anyone finds out about it, I promise you, no one will respect you. Your kids aren't going to respect you. Your wife will leave you. You will get fired. He will minimize the promises and punishment of God until he convinces you to do what he wants to, and then he'll maximize it so you're just all twisted and confused in your relationship with Jesus. This is what happened with Peter. Like, Peter had no physical threat, but the spiritual threat of if they associate me with him and they've arrested him, what if they arrest me and the spiritual warfare took over and kind of ran Peter in the wrong direction. We also learn, interestingly enough, that Peter had an accent. He said, your accent gives you away. Apparently, people from Galilee spoke differently than people from Jerusalem. Maybe he had a country accent. We know that the city people of Israel accused the disciples of being kind of unlearned, untrained kind of country bumpkins. So someone comes up and they're like, we know you're one of his people. You, like, your accent gives you away. And Peter's like, I ain't never met this fellow y'all talking about. He's like, I, like, I you know, it's like... You know, like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about. 
And they're like, boy, you ain't from around here. Like, we know you're with him because you talk like a freaking hillbilly. And it's like, your accent gives you away. So we see, like, Peter, like, all twisted and turned in the story. And as you, like, trace the night through the night, really what we find is what I call a pitiful Simon Peter. Four things are true of him at the exact same time. He's desperate in his need for Jesus. He follows him all the way to a dangerous place. At the exact same time, he's defiant in his fight not to suffer with Jesus. He's like, I need him, but I don't know that I can do that for him. He's burdened by the standards and statements of Jesus. Peter, you can't do it on your own. I know you think you can, but you're going to fail. And when he fails, he's broken by his lack of courage and conviction. You know why I think Matthew puts this picture of pitiful Simon Peter in front of us? I think it's because it's a portrait of all of us. This is, for most of us, a picture of us spiritually. We are desperate as followers of Jesus. We are in desperate need for Jesus. Yet, when hard things come, sometimes we are defiant in our fight not to suffer with Jesus. Now, by the way, I wrestled with this word and I changed it. As I went through the many iterations of this message before I sent it over to our team to print everything you now have in your hands and what's on the screen... I had at first defiant in his fight not to suffer for Jesus, but I thought that's not true. Because in this moment, it's not a for, it's a with. Like he sees Jesus suffering for him. And in that moment, he's like, I'm not willing to do that for him. I know Jesus is willing to suffer for me. I'm not willing to suffer with him. Like while Jesus is suffering, Peter's like, I can't do that. I think it's important to realize in 2023, sometimes we think we suffer for Jesus. That's only when we forget what he went through on this night. Nobody suffers for Jesus. Sometimes we get the ability to suffer with Jesus. But he suffered first. Peter was like, I can't do that. He was burdened by the standards and statements of Jesus. He felt pressure to measure up that he could not measure up without Jesus, but he tried. And when he failed, he was completely broken by his lack of courage and conviction. Reality set in, and he thought, I am a mess without Jesus, but to remain with him, I don't know that I can do that on my own. It's a picture, Peter is, of every follower of Jesus who has not grasped that suffering is one of the most powerful parts of discipleship. It's a picture of people who want to be strong, but are unable to go through what you have to go through to be strong. And what we find out is that pitiful Peter only becomes powerful, Peter, by walking through and getting through a season of suffering. We all know this. It's interesting. Peter allowed his spiritual failure to become spiritually fruitful when he learned from it, and he got stronger, but he had to go through it first. I have, like you, met a lot of Christians who've suffered a lot of things in their life. Almost every one of them at the end, says something like this. I would not choose to go through something like that again, but I would not change it. Because who it has made me, I could not have become without it. Some of us want to move from pitiful to powerful. 
but we're looking at that wall of difficulty saying, I don't know that I can walk through that. I don't know that I want to walk through that. I don't know that I can suffer for Jesus. I don't know that I can suffer with Jesus. You know, Danielle and I uh, left last Sunday to take our son to college, literally walked off the stage uh, into a car, drove to Louisville, Kentucky in a tornado watch, um, eight hours in a tornado watch driving across Kentucky and Indiana, got to Louisville, slept through a tornado watch, the, uh, the storm that went through, literally ripped the buildings apart a couple miles from our hotel. Roofs were torn off all over northwestern Louisville, uh, but it got through, got up the next morning and caught the exact same, finally caught up with the exact same storm cell in West Virginia. So the second day, drove through, tornado watch all the way to Lynchburg, Virginia. And as we went on that drive, a lot of our conversation with our son, who's going into his senior year at college, was like, what's going to happen next year? What if I don't get a job? Or what if I get this job? Or what if I get this job here? What if I don't know anyone? And he, like his mind was just going a, m- a million miles a minute. Like I'm starting my senior year. At the end of senior year, like everything can change. And like we just had to kind of like pull him back. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I gave him this phrase. I said, Christian, if you will be faithful today, you'll be fruitful tomorrow. Like if you'll be faithful today, you'll be fruitful tomorrow. Don't worry about May. Worry about today. Be faithful today. If you'll be faithful today, you'll be fruitful tomorrow. I just kept saying that the whole week we were with him at Liberty. Be faithful today, you'll be fruitful tomorrow. But I've also learned this. Failure today can lead to fruitfulness tomorrow if you'll use it. Suffering today can lead to fruitfulness tomorrow if you'll use it. Because the apostle Peter who wasn't strong enough to stand up to a couple middle school girls who were like, are you a Christian? Later at the end of his life writes a letter to the church who's going through some difficult things, and look how he has changed. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. He's grown. 1 Peter 4, 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Praise God that you bear that name. He's grown. 1 Peter 5.10, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. He has grown. The apostle Peter who ran from suffering tells Christians in your discipleship, keep running through suffering. It's going to make you stronger. That's from the mouth of Peter. How about the mouth of the apostle Paul, Philippians 1.29, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. You want to be a Christian? You're going to suffer for your Christianity. Not only Peter and Paul, but Jesus' little brother James says in James 4, 10 and 11, brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance. You've seen what the Lord finally brought about. One of the things I love about the New Testament, it brings me discouragement, but then hope, is that hardly any of the books of the New Testament finish without talking about suffering, which tells me that it's not abnormal, which tells me that it's not my fault, which tells me that I'll get through it, which tells me that I'll be stronger at the end of it. Here's the bottom line. Suffering always causes spiritual movement. You've got to figure out which direction you're going. Suffering always causes spiritual movement. You're either moving towards Jesus 
are you moving away from him? This is a fact. If you're suffering, you're moving. The question is, which direction? Hard days making you run from Jesus. Hard days making you run to Jesus. The promise if we run to Jesus is that he'll use it. Romans 5, not only so, it says we also glory. The word glory means feel the weight of. Paul says we feel the weight in our sufferings, not because they're hard, but because they're useful. Paul said we allow ourselves to feel the weight of our suffering because we know it's going to grow us. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What's God saying to you today? Maybe you walked in after a lifetime of refusing to submit to Jesus because you're not going to let anyone tell you what to do, but you realize there's no one else that can help you do what needs to be done, and maybe you're willing to say, okay, Jesus, Savior, King, lawgiver, judge, all of them. I surrender. I submit. I'm in. Maybe you're here today, and as a follower of Jesus, you've been going through some suffering, and you're running away from Jesus rather than to him. The only way through is towards Jesus. Your circumstance might not be perfect, but you don't have to be alone in it if you invite Jesus into it. Maybe God has been calling you to your next step, but the difficulty and suffering and pain that your next step will bring is too much for you. And like Peter, you're saying, I'm not willing to do that. God today is saying, try me. It's been granted to you, not only to believe in Jesus, but to do hard things with Jesus. That's part of the deal. Keep moving forward. We close our services at Journey by allowing you to reflect on what you've heard through a series of questions on our screens. So I'm just going to say a quick prayer, and then those questions will roll for three minutes. At the end of those three minutes, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, because you've refused to submit up to this point in your life, but you realize today he's your only hope, I'll give you a chance to say yes to Jesus, and then we'll close our services. But God, open our hearts now, open our minds, as we just reflect on what we've heard, as we apply it to our life, our story, our walk. Lord, we're all going to move spiritually today question is, are we moving towards Jesus or away from him? Show us how to move towards him. Give us courage, strength to run in his direction. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.